A lot of what makes Ireland special is found scattered across the countryside. You want to get out into the corners of Ireland, and if you can, really even get off to some little islands offshore. Coming up, an Ireland travel expert wants to raise your comfort level about renting a car and driving across the Emerald Isle. For travel writer Mary Morris, the best trips worth writing about have usually been the ones she's gone on by herself. She shares how she's made traveling solo as a woman work for her. They're just experiences that I know I would never have had if I were traveling with, you know, a friend, a husband, a lover, another person. And tour guides from Prague provide tips for enjoying the must-see sites of the Czech capital. Castle Bridge and Klok. So these are the three kind of, you know, highlights. As well as the little things the locals can fill you in on. Like when you're going out for a beer. When your glass is almost empty, all of a sudden there is another one. Come along for a great hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Mary Morris once settled into the dusty outskirts of San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, before the town became trendy with artists and retirees from north of the border. She tells us on today's Travel with Rick Steves why she prefers to travel solo for experiences worth writing home about or including in a book. And guides from Prague share practical touring tips for enjoying one of the most charming capitals in Europe. Let's start the hour with advice for travelers planning a trip to Ireland. If you've been trying to coordinate the tricky Irish train and bus schedules, Pat O'Connor suggests you seriously consider your options for exploring the Irish countryside in a rental car, even if it's not as easy or cheap as it might be back home. Ireland is notorious among car rental companies for getting their cars rented to tourists and coming back all banged up. Ireland, where you'll be motoring on the left side of the road, on skinny lanes, and with so much to look at, it can be a tricky place to drive. But we're going to talk about that right now. And we're joined by a man who, for about 20 years of exploring Ireland, has driven thousands of miles on the Emerald Isle. And he's got the perfect name for my choice for the best expert on Irish travel in the entire U.S. of A., Patrick O'Connor. Pat's the senior Ireland tour guide and consultant here at Rick Steves Europe. He's the co-author of my Ireland guidebooks. He's also been leading tours of Ireland for more than 20 years, and he joins us now with his well-earned tips for helping you drive comfortably and with confidence in his beloved Ireland. Pat, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Rick. I love exploring Ireland by car, and it can certainly be challenging, but it, it really comes with great rewards. We'll get to the pitfalls in just a minute, but first, why would you bother to drive in Ireland? Well, it gives you total freedom, Rick, and really the joys of Ireland for me are the west coast of Ireland. I think the rock walls and the pretty green fields that so many people are picturing in Ireland, they really need access beyond just where the trains and the buses go. Because it's a sparsely populated island, and uh, if you're limited by public transit from city to city, that's workable. But if you really want to get in touch with the joys of the countryside, plus, in my experience, Pat, when you're driving, it's, it's kind of a community affair. You, you never know what's around the corner. That's right. Although you're on the other side of the road, stop thinking about territoriality with my side of the road and your side of the road, because it's really a shared cooperative adventure where you go around the corner. There could be a flock of sheep or a, a one-lane bridge or a tractor, and you really have to pull over wherever. You, you know, in my memory, I see a lot of um, tread marks on the road, just mud that's been tracked across the road that's by it. tractors. You're yeah. just, you, you roll down the window and you, it's a bucolic smell. Uh, well, yeah, it is. It is. You know, you're in Ireland. <laughs> One-lane bridges, pulling over to let people get by, uh, that's right. smiling, stopping and chatting with people as you're driving. It's important not to try to get anywhere in too much of a hurry. 
That's right. It's sort of an attitude adjustment, and I have no ego. I pull over whenever there's somebody who's in a hurry behind me and just let them pass by. And yeah, because local people, are they're just hell-bent maybe on getting bet. somewhere. But as a tourist, take it easy. And in bet. fact, I like to ask locals for directions just because it gives me a little connection I wouldn't have otherwise with somebody who's not in tourism. Absolutely. Um, it's always kind of a rich experience, and that gift of gab really comes out. And it's charming. And it's useful, but you have to kind of triangulate between three or four voices to get the truth. (laughs) So I I would say, even if you know where you're going, just for the experience. I used to do that when I was driving minibus tours. You just want to see the twinkle in somebody's eye and hear and come up with something. And as you said, the Irish people have, they just love conversation. It's the famous gift of gab. It truly is. It truly is. You know, Pat, when I'm driving anywhere in Europe, uh, I find that listening to the radio in that community is a real insight. And of course, in Ireland, we have the advantage of of understanding the language, uh, unless you happen to be listening to a Gaelic radio station. Well, that's exactly right. So there is an Irish radio station and TV station that is RTE4 on the TV or RTE on the radio, and it's conversational insights that you can't get anywhere else. And it's Fascinating. And it's in English. Not, it's in not, English. Okay, That's right. so you yeah. can hear it with a nice Irish accent. That's right. But they'll give the news in Irish, uh-huh. you know, once an hour, and they'll play the Angelus Bells at noon. Is that know. like the Irish version of BBC or something like that? It is, exactly. exactly okay, so you'll right. find it. You don't even need to remember the No, no, you'll find, you'll find it. You'll find it. So as you're driving, take advantage of that easy radio soundtrack to you Irish bet. culture. You bet. Hey, Pat, when we are driving in Ireland, of course, it is, like like I mentioned in the beginning, this insurance thing, it's an issue. Tourists, if they're not on the ball, it can be dangerous. First of all, you're driving on not the wrong side of the road, but the other side of the That's road. That's exactly right. That's right. And they do that in all the former British Isles, uh, other than Canada, mm-hmm. on the other side of the road. How do you it, do that without getting in a head-on head, head on collision? <laughs> well, okay, so... The first thing I find is really get to know the car before you even leave the parking lot. You really need to know, you know, where the windshield wipers are and where the lights are and where the defogger is and all of that. So before you, because sometimes I drive away and then I realize, oh, I should have asked that question. Yeah. Make it a standard operating procedure to just stay in the lot for a few minutes. That's it. They're fine with that. In fact, they'd probably appreciate it because you're less likely to bring the car back all banged up. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, So take. 20 minutes and get to know how the lights work. Absolutely. Uh, you know, put it in reverse, Absolutely. lock it, see how it functions. That's right. And and I'm a big fan of Google Maps Street View, which um, you can, let's say, plot a route from Dublin to Kilkenny or something, and it will give you its favorite route. And then you can drop your cursor right onto the line and look at the actual street view that demystifies what you're driving through. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined today by Pat O'Connor. That's the co-author of the Rick Steves Ireland Guidebook, and he's been helping us anticipate the issues you can expect while driving a rental car around Ireland. And I should say, you got to make a choice when you're traveling. Should you rent a car or should you go with public transit? And in many cases, public transit is the way to go. In the, in the Netherlands or Belgium, it's so easy. The trains are going all the time and so on. But in Ireland, my understanding or my experience is, you know, Dublin dominates the place, so it's, there's a hub of Dublin and good transportation going out from Dublin. But if you're going to go across the grain, like up and down the West Coast, that's where the train line would be frustrating, mm-hmm. and the bus line is kind of sparse. That's right. You're going to right. have your own wheels. The example I like to give is, when I'm doing my research every year, I drive from Kenmare on the Ring of Kerry to Dingle, and that's about an hour and a half's drive. Right. Uh, one time I took it by bus. And that took me over three hours because I had to change buses in both Tralee and Killarney. Right. So buses are safe and 
inexpensive, but they're going to really put you in slow motion. Slow motion. And sometimes you can make a case for that. Sometimes when you're going from town to town, it's it's great. I went from Oxford to Cambridge on a bus, and it was a wonderful experience, and I didn't need to have my car in either place. Fact is, you're going to want your car everywhere you go outside of Belfast and Dublin. That's right. You really don't want to drive in Dublin. You know, land in Dublin and sightsee for a couple of days and then go back out to the airport and rent your car from there. Because we just got to remember, it's not a rich country and it's a sparsely populated country and it's it's a lot of just small rural lanes. Mm-hmm. And it's a charming country. I remember going yeah. to the, the little, there's a little ferry crossing um, south of the Burren. I, I drove up and the, I just missed the ferry. It was like an eight-car ferry. Mm-hmm. The ferry captain saw me. He brought the ferry back to yeah. pick me up. I, 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 you just don't expect that anywhere That's else. That's the Shannon Estuary. That's such a beautiful human experience, and you can still get that in Ireland. The people are the real treasure. Having said that, of course, Ireland is part of the EU. EU understands that, I mean, they're only as strong as their weakest link, and they've invested in the countries without the infrastructure. That's Port, right. Portugal, Greece, Ireland. That's I remember right. when there was no freeways in Ireland, and today, well, what's the latest with Ireland's infrastructure because of EU investments? Well, right before the property crash in 2008, there was a lot of money in the Irish financial system for infrastructure. And Mm -hmm. I remember in those days seeing them building new freeways between Dublin and Galway and down to Cork and so on. Uh, That money did bring in big freeways, but still you can't get around Ireland very fast. I figure about... Don't even try to. Don't try. Dublin to Galway, Dublin up north to Belfast, Mm -hmm. you can go fast that way. That's easy. But that's not where you want to go. No, exactly. You want to get out into the corners of Ireland, and if you can, really even get off to some little islands offshore. That's where the real charm is. Very quickly, let's just take a little of the stress out of driving. Uh, First of all, driving on the Irish side of the road or the British side of the road. Mm -hmm. My philosophy is just if you're in a near head-on collision, don't be too confident. You're probably on the wrong side. Uh, Well, that's true. That's true. Um, (laughs) Because um, I always have to remind myself, every time I come out from a little rest stop, reflexively I go to our side of the road. Yeah. And they go, oh, my goodness, get back on there. So always be humble that way. Exactly. Humble is the right word. And you have a passenger in your car, make them an active participant in navigation and that extra set of eyes. Yeah. Uh, things like roundabouts that we don't have in the States are actually a beautiful thing in my eyes because you don't have to stop at a stoplight when there's nobody there. The people who are in the roundabout already have the priority. They have the right of way in the roundabout. But you're going you're gonna to frustrate people behind you if you stop needlessly like we are accustomed to at a four-way stop. That's right. The beauty right. of a roundabout is you whip into that roundabout. My rule is don't be stressed out about which is your option. Take an exploratory 360-degree right. loop. Talk it over with the navigator. Do it again if you want to. You'll feel like a fool, but nobody is still in the roundabout except you. They and don't you know. know. We, we, we merge <laughs> into those things much slower than we merge into major U.S. freeways. Oh, and yeah. take a look at the pavement as you're approaching the roundabout. There's oftentimes the lane uh, that you need to get into, which will yeah. uh, avoid the stress of trying to read a sign in the center of the roundabout. And once again, it's your first time. Give yourself that wonderful 360-degree exploratory loop. Pat O'Connor co-authors the Rick Steves Ireland Guidebook, and he's one of the sharpest experts on traveling in Ireland that I know. He's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to help you know what to anticipate when driving a rental car in Ireland on the left side of the road in the rain. Super narrow roads. Yeah. I mean, with hedges on both sides, right. and every couple hundred yards, you've got a turnout. How do you handle that? So whoever is closest to the turnout, if there's oncoming traffic, and some of these are little one-lane little roads that are fantastic to be on as far as where they get you, but you need to be courteous. You pull over at the wide spot in the road if you're closest to it mm-hmm. and let them get by you. 
Pat O'Connor. I'm so thankful that you've been able to work so hard for 20 years and share all of your experience in the Rick Steves Ireland Guidebook. You know, I just want to close with some magic that makes you so glad you dealt with uh, getting used to driving Irish. I- I'll never forget once when I was in Dingle. I've always done the wonderful Dingle Peninsula during the day like a good tourist, lacing together all the shots, and it's, you know, it's crowded, everybody's out. But then one year, I did it after dinner, and it's light until late in Ireland. And I finished dinner at 7, and I had three hours of light, and it was a whole different atmosphere. It was magical, and I was thankful I had a car to have that mobility. You bet. What's a magic moment, a a thankful moment that you've had in Ireland that we could just wrap it up here to inspire people when they go to Ireland to don't be shy about getting a rental car? I'll tell you a quick human story. I actually tried to turn around on an Irish road that was a one-lane road. There was nobody around. Uh, The first year that I had a rental car, and I high-centered the car in the ditch, and I'm blocking the road. And here comes a tractor, and this Irish guy gets out of his tractor, pulls out his chains, couldn't be more friendly and jovial about it. Just a connection that I didn't expect, and I was on my way again 15 minutes later. So you're going to have some trials and tribulations, but roll with it. Pat O'Connor, thanks so much, and I think we'll all be a little more confident and smart when it comes to exploring Ireland in our rental car. Great, Rick. Thanks. Tour guides from Prague have practical advice for visiting their city, where old-world charm survived the wars of the 20th century and even the crush of tourists before the pandemic. But first, writer Mary Morris shares how she's enjoyed exploring faraway places on her own over the years. When Mary Morris wrote the book Nothing to Declare, Memoirs of a Woman Traveling Alone, she joined the proud ranks of what at the time were a small number of female travel writers in a field long considered a man's domain. Since it was first published back in 1988, that book's been recognized as a classic title of travel, describing her risk-taking solo adventure across Latin America and confronting the realities of place, of poverty, and machismo. Her newest book, All the Way to the Tigers, also recounts a solo trip, this time on a tiger safari in the heart of India. Mary joins us now to talk about the joys and the challenges of traveling alone as a woman and what's changed in the span between those two books. Mary, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. Yeah, now, your book, um, Nothing to Declare, is just filled with great travel moments as you celebrate solo travel as a woman, and it's based on travels in Latin America. Can you share with us one vivid moment out of that adventure that kind of illustrates your message? Yes, absolutely. So I moved to um, San Miguel de Allende in 1978. I'd moved into this apartment. I didn't really know where I was living. It was very solitary. Um, I woke up at 4 in the morning to a rooster on my balcony crowing its head off. I looked out, and there was a woman waving at me, and it was her rooster, and she came into the house. Her name, she introduced herself as Lupe. She grabbed her rooster by its feet, um, got feathers all over the the house, and as she was leaving with her rooster upside down, she said, um, he's just like like all men. He's always always on the prowl. (laughs) Uh, And she became my very dear friend, Lupe. There you go. Welcome to to her world. So, you (laughs) know, (laughs) you're a woman, and it seems you like to travel solo. Uh, And people always ask me, uh, because I wouldn't know, but you can answer it. Is it safe? What's your answer? Um, It depends. Sometimes it's safe, sometimes it's not safe. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just things I wouldn't do. Um, you know, there are mistakes that women can make on the road. Um, I, I think I think you just need an exit strategy. I think every woman traveling needs an exit strategy. 
So, for example, I would never stay out too late. I would never drink too much that I couldn't get home in mm-hmm. a good way. Uh, that was very important to me. Um, there was a very narrow alleyway leading back to my house where I lived in Mexico. And I always looked very carefully to make sure there wasn't anyone coming towards me in that alleyway before I would go down it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just I, I think you just have to be extra vigilant, you know, hyper vigilant. Be on the ball, the, have an exit strategy. Be on the ball, right, exit strategy. And you prefer to travel solo. What are the, what are the pros and cons uh, of, of traveling solo? Because that's a big decision for a lot of people. Right. I mean, I think, you know, Paul Theroux, I think, said that, you know, the only real travel is solo travel. They're just experiences that I know I would never have had if I were traveling with, you know, a friend, a husband, a lover, another person. And so, you know, for me, when I want to have that visceral connection to the world, I need to go alone. Mm -hmm. And I've been married for 32 years to a man who understands that, Mm -hmm. which is a gift. But, you know, if I want to go on a vacation or I want to do something like that, well, then I'll, you know, I'll drag someone along. But, you know, just me as a real traveler connecting to the world, um, I need to do that alone. You know, you just hit something there. You, If you want to go on a vacation, sure, bring your partner. But if you want to have a travel experience, that's right. dif- differentiating between a vacation and a travel experience. You wrote nothing to declare back in the 80s. And you've that's just right. written all the way to the Tigers. How has the the world changed for women travelers since then? Is it better now or are the challenges still the same in 30 years? It's such a good question. I mean, there are, there are places that I was comfortable going to 30 years ago, like the Middle East and North Africa, that I wouldn't be so comfortable going to now alone. I mean, I would go, mm-hmm. but not necessarily alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, I think, Rick, the world's a more dangerous place. You know, between pandemic and, you know, terrorism and all kinds of stuff, it's it, it just feels more dangerous. And So you and, felt, you felt um, more comfortable in the 80s hanging out in a dusty little town in El Salvador or Mexico than you would today? I did. I was probably a little dumber then, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I was probably not as, mm-hmm. as you know. Little, I, can, I can imagine not yeah. being dumber, but that would be a little more easygoing back in a simpler time. That's right. I mean, I think particularly in San Miguel, I mean, it's um, I think the the differences of class and race are much more acute than when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I found I found a, a more a more fluid, acceptant kind of culture where I think now there's a lot of resentment mm-hmm. and, you know, it's it's complicated, obviously, by immigration and all, all kinds of things. And, yeah. you know, it's just a completely different place than when I lived there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring what it means to travel solo while female with author Mary Morris. Her books include Nothing to Declare, Memoirs of a Woman Traveling Alone, and All the Way to the Tigers. You can find more about Mary's work at marymorris.net. Mary, when we travel, especially south of the border, we hear the word machismo. What is mm-hmm. what is machismo? What, what shapes the, the macho man's view of the world? Well, I guess in, in, in our speak, it would be something like, you know, male entitlement. You know the the sense that the kind of it's a kind of toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. I would say. You know where you have to prove yourself. You have to you know prove your your you know you're virile and you're strong and you're not going to take any garbage from anybody. Um, I, I do think machismo is a, less of a of a phenomenon than it was in the '80s when I was traveling. Just as in Italy, I think that the catcalling culture and and that has, you know, I think there is, you know, for example, in Italy, I, f- I feel much more respect for women than I felt in the '80s, and I think that's also true 
you know, in in mm-hmm. in Mexico. But and I think machismo is that that kind of toxic masculinity. Yeah, just this male dominance kind of thing and power plays right. by men. You know, I've known that a lot of women play their women card to their advantage. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, a woman gets picked up quicker when she's hitchhiking. Have you ever had an advantage because you're a woman that you've that you've you've taken advantage of? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. I think because you're a woman, things can open up to you in a different way. But I also think you have to be wary of it, especially if you're a younger woman, you know, because it's the one thing that you get a, you get a ride easier, but then are you going to get hassled during that ride? So, right. you know, that's also something to, to think about. And, and that's, you know, that's also, I mean, I'm, I've read somewhere and um, my daughter and I have talked about this, that there's, there's certain kinds of, of women that, and I, I think I might be one of them, where men just don't really want to mess with you. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just not worth it. And I think, you know, women should admit that that strength and that I think if you can, you know, show that side of yourself and and move through the world with that sense of confidence and assuredness, you'll be okay. I think it's that when we're we're timid, when we're we're looking for, you know, sucker or someone to protect us or something like that, we show our vulnerability in a way that you know, animals understand this, right? You know, so it's it's showing your, showing your strength, and I think that's one of the things that I also love about tigers is that they are always yeah. Well, you wrote. Showing their I, I love what you wrote. You said a woman must be able to strike a proud pose, curse like a sailor, kick like a mule, and scream out your brother's name, even if he's three thousand miles away. You mustn't be a fool. I still hold to that. I totally, I totally believe that. But you've always um, got this fine line. You want to be independent. You want to be free to be out after dark. But in some cultures, if a woman is alone out after dark, she's just considered to be a prostitute. I mean, I remember traveling through Russia, and I was stopped at the border leaving Russia, and I had a pair of high heels with me. And the customs person took me off the train and said, you're a prostitute. You're a pro-. I said, those are my shoes. You know? right. Yeah. Those are my shoes. I'm not a prostitute. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's that I mean, that it also seems that, ridiculous, but how you dress, what kind of eye contact you get, it's it can get you in trouble when it shouldn't get you in trouble, but it can. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also important for women. It is different. And, you know, I'm thinking about this, too, because it was true in India and it's it's true. You know, you know, you need to know when you need to wear a headscarf or have your, your, your arms covered and not to wear shorts and not mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, you know, to, to respect – Whatever, even if you may not agree with it, you know, respect the cultural norms. I think that's fundamental. When you're traveling in a society where women wear a scarf, you're not going to fight that battle. Wear a scarf and you'll be... Wear, wear, a, wear a scarf. You know, again, particularly women. I mean, men men get a free pass on a lot of these things, you mm-hmm. know. But, you know, particularly for, for women, it, it is important when you're going to these places, you know. I find I find in some lands there's three kinds of people. There's men... There's local women and there's Western women. Well, and that's why it's important to really know the customs and culture that you're traveling in. You know, know when you shake hands with people and when you, mm-hmm. you know, when you namaste and, you know, how, how, how do you move through a culture as a woman? It's very, very important. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mary Morris, and her books include Nothing to Declare, Memoirs of a Woman Traveling Alone, and her new book, All the Way to the Tigers. You can find more about Mary at marymorris.net. So, Mary, your your Nothing to Declare book was uh, set in Latin America. Your All the Way to the Tigers book was in India. 
So there's the man-woman thing, and then there's also the rich-poor thing. And, and you wrote about walls being decorated with broken bottles on the top of these walls, you know? Right. Um, and, and you see that, in, especially in the poor world. Um, just cinder block walls, and on the top, you've got just a, a forest of jagged, broken bottles to keep people from climbing over that wall. What does that represent to you? Well, walls like that, I mean, they're... The, their only purpose is to keep poor people out. You know, I mean, we've just spent a, a, a lot of money, wasted money, in my opinion, building a border wall. You know, wall, walls are to keep people out, and it's often a question of keeping, you know, poor people out. Mm-hmm. And we tend to demonize, you know, people who are in need mm-hmm. rather than embracing them and trying to understand that everyone, you know, there, I think there's a quote from Plato that says, you know, everyone's trying, everyone's dealing with something, be kind. And, you know, to understand that, you know, I would say most people aren't really trying to rip you off. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there are bad things, but I, I could not imagine myself living inside walls with Coke bottle, you know, jagged Coke bottles on the top. And because that's the to norm. me, that's keeping the world, that's the norm, yeah. It's a sad norm. I was in uh, Addis Ababa in a big fancy hotel and, uh, you know, it, mm. cost, it cost six months of the average wage to spend one night in the hotel I was in. It was so oh. high risk, high security, I couldn't even take any pictures of the outside. But I was standing there in in the in the garden and looking out over that wall, I saw the reality of Ethiopia in this, mm. it was in the middle of a poor part of a big city. And it just, to me, was was sort of a, a representative of a world with a huge gap. And when we think of these cinder block walls with broken bottles on top, I know that, from my experience, when you go to a country with no middle class and you pick up the local small-town newspaper, you see advertisements for razor wire, you know, that's, mm, that kind of, of concertina wire. And you go to these countries, you see armed guards at banks and at pharmacies, and it's just everywhere you look, there's reminders of this gap between the haves and the have-nots, and you... You complicate that with the gap between men and women, and it makes the world such a perplexing and interesting, uh, fascinating puzzle. Right. Well, it, you know, I, I remember we were we were in Jamaica a, a number of years ago um, at a resort for reasons that aren't worth going into, but I had, I had to be in a resort. And I got very tired of the resort, and there was a, a place across the, the street where I saw that Jamaican people were going, and they were getting fried chicken and, you know, rice and beans and stuff like that. And I thought, I you know, I want to go there. And I went there, and um, the server wouldn't wait on me. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't wait on me. Um, I wasn't welcome. Hmm. And um, you know, that was a kind of lesson. You know, to feel my own invisibility. You know, while mm-hmm. we tend to view people who, you know, are in service to us, as you know, being somewhat invisible. Boy. So, and um, it's, this is like you said. You could go on a vacation with your with your husband and and relax in a resort. That's fine. But if you want to travel, you're gonna immerse yourself in this without taking needless risks, without being reckless, and then you're going to come home with a much better understanding of our world. And that's a beautiful souvenir, I think. Yeah, I mean, you have to walk, you have to you have to go outside that wall, the yeah. wall we've been talking about, right? And you can't thing, keep yourself in that wall. Author Mary Morris is our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Mary's travel memoirs focus on going it alone. They include the classic Nothing to Declare about her experiences in Mexico and Central America in the 1980s. A travel blogger even called it one of the 10 best travel titles of the 20th century. Mary's also written a number of novels based on historical characters and family journeys. In corresponding with Mary, she points out that a teacher once told her there were only two plots in all of literature. You go on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Men got to write about going off to sea, 
But instead of waiting on a stranger like Jane Austen or Virginia Woolf, Mary decided to go on the journey herself. We have a link to her earlier appearance with us about her travels to view Bengal tigers in India. You can find that in the notes to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. One thing, fun, when, I, when I read through your books, it's so fundamental is it is people that gives you these experiences to write about in all of these lessons. And that's the mark of a good traveler to me is how do you re- meet real people? Uh, do you have any um, advice, especially for women, because women have to be more, can't be quite as quick to jump into some stranger's uh, uh, car or something like that. Um, do you have any advice for women meeting real people far from home? Yeah. One of the things I realized when I was writing all the way to the tigers is that in the word silent is the word listen, right? And I think a lot of it is just listening to other people. And mm-hmm. if you speak the language, of course, you need you need to have a language that you can – a common language. But, you know, finding a commonality and just listening to people's stories. I mean, it, it, if you show kindness and, and a willingness to hear another person's story, they will reciprocate that, I, I have found. But it's important to listen. listen. Listening to me is the is the highest form of generosity. That is so, so fundamental to be able to listen by being silent. I like that. Silent and listening has the same letters. I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got so many emails from some of our listeners here. Becca from Eagle Rock in Virginia wrote, The greatest joy of traveling solo as a woman is the opportunity to participate in other people's lives. I've been invited to join people over something as simple as a cup of coffee to be invited into someone's home, into their life, for just a short time. When traveling with others, our focus is inward, toward the other people you're with, whereas when traveling alone, you're turned outward, and you're more able to listen and meet people along the way. Uh, One quick example, while cruising on the Seine, a Spanish family was seated next to me, and when the young son fell asleep on my shoulder, they tried to apologize, but as soon as they saw I was not bothered, they included me in their family circle. I was no longer traveling solo, but I was an honorary part of their extended family. If only for the evening, I was part of their conversation. That's that beautiful. is just beautiful. I, that really says, you know, exactly what I think. Um, That's what it, travel. It, it's right. Mary Morris, author of Nothing to Declare, which has inspired so many women for so many years to get out and embrace the world, and your new book, All the Way to the Tigers. Thank you for joining us. And let's close with, I would just love to know if you have a, a tangible souvenir that you treasure as a solo woman traveler. I do. Um, so a number of years ago, I was traveling through the Southwest, and I was at the Hopi Reservation, and it was a, a night of a very important dance. I, I think it may have been a deer dance. But anyway, I was at the top of the kiva. You couldn't, couldn't go into the kiva, which is where the ceremony was happening. But I was able to watch from above. And at one point, one of the dancers left and passed me and looked at me for a minute and walked on and then came back and took off the earrings he was wearing. He had these beautiful feathered earrings, and he gave them to me with a blessing. And uh, it meant everything to me. It was a difficult time in my life, and just this gift from a stranger. And I keep them on my bulletin board. They're always there. Whenever I feel like like I've lost my way or my purpose, I look at them, and I remember that someone gave me that gift. That's exactly what I had a hunch you would have, because you're such a thoughtful and caring traveler and writer. And I, I know the beauty of finding some memento that reminds you of the value of travel. Mary Morris, thank you so much, and best wishes with your writing. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you. 
tips for enjoying the classic sights of Prague, plus a few hidden gems of the Czech capital that only the locals can tell you about. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Once a world-class capital, Prague was known as a cultural center drawing in artists, writers, and composers from all over Europe. Today, the city's popularity lies in its preserved architecture, its wonderful old-world charm, and it's very popular with visitors. Jana Horovska and Katarina Svobodova are two Czech guides who live and work in Prague, and they're here in our studio to talk about one of Europe's most walkable and photogenic cities, Prague. Jana, Katarina, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. Now, Jana, you were born and raised in Prague. We, we think of it today as sort of a fantasy land for tourism, and it's the golden city of a hundred spires and so many happy people. What are your childhood memories yes. of Prague? Well, uh, I was born in 1979, so it was 10 years before the you know, regime changed. And uh, so I could actually you know, follow all the changes, all the transition, which was very dramatic. But to be honest, I really started to appreciate my city only through the eyes of the foreign visitors, because for me, all the beauty was normal. It has always been there. So it was not, I was not amazed by the old, you know, ancient Charles Bridge or the great panorama of the Prague Castle. It was just there. No big deal. Maybe. No big deal. And also, you know, we did not travel that much, you know, ah. when I was a child. So maybe you thought every city was like that. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then the, and then tourists come and they go, wow, this is incredible. Yes, yes, yes. And then uh, maybe they helped you appreciate the uniqueness of Prague. That's right. That's right. Because then, only then, I could realize how lucky actually we were, despite all the bad luck of the yeah. 20th century, despite of the all the totalitarian regimes and, and everything. for a quick review, of course, Prague mm-hmm. was historically, for a thousand years, the capital of the Czech people. But, you know, mm-hmm. in the 20th century, mm-hmm. it was under the Soviet Union control. That's right, after World War II, because actually we were in the, you know, sphere of influence or interest of Soviet Russia. And then, especially after 1968, after the invasion, so we were practically occupied by the so Soviets. So it was uh, relatively... Gray and, and it was and it was gray and maybe sad, you know, looking yeah. city. Uh, but we were lucky actually during World War II that Prague was actually almost untouched. One of the so, one of the few major exactly. cities that, for yeah, whatever yeah. reason, was not bombed. Yes. So then the communists did not have any chance to kind of build their, you know, so architecture. Katerina, then uh, finally, what 1989, 1990, the Soviet Union fell apart. Prague was free. Well, 1989 was our Velvet Revolution, so we were the fourth in the row. So after Poland and Hungary and then East, I think the biggest thing, the East Germany, when the wall mm-hmm. fell down, we were like, mm, that's maybe our chance. So we started also. Okay, so 1990, we have Czechoslovakia free from the Soviet Union. And then what happened with Czecho and Slovakia, Czechoslovakia? Well, you know, at the beginning, of course, it was like uh, this This marriage always worked well. At least I, from my, you know, granny, I know when it started in the 1918 and so. But the truth is that then they were those ideas like, oh, why we actually don't call it maybe Slovakia? There was the first issue about oh, the... Slovakia, Czechoslovakia. So then and after that, well, and then of course, then other political leaders got into the power because it was pretty amazing. The first elections we had after the fall of communism in June of 1990 with all the parties we all of a sudden could uh, choose from, you know. And so. was it was it obvious for everybody that Czech people and Slovak people wanted to be independent countries from each other, or was it a big debate? I would not say so. Sometimes people are surprised when we tell them how peacefully we split. So that was a bloodless split. It was a, almost a happy divorce? 
It was. Yeah. I so would now say we have was. Czech Republic and we have and, Slovakia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now Prague is uh, known as the golden city of a hundred spires, and as Jana was saying, not bombed in World War II. It's a city that has amazing architecture, almost like a time warp. And mm-hmm. today, all the the pollution and the soot has been cleaned away, and it sparkles. Yeah, this is what I was thinking when Jana was talking about that grayness, you know, that it was exactly like what I remember from my childhood, Prague, how it looked and how amazing it was that after uh, the changes, when the city was also put on UNESCO, day by day you could see more and more shine and color in the city as it used to be, but we had no chance to see it before. So then, and just because of this great luck that it was not really destroyed, we can take it like uh, even mystery because it's not even very clearly explained like why the city was not bombed. I guess it was just luck. The the the, the armies yeah. and the bombs well, could have come through Prague. That's and... right because there was also nothing important for the war efforts. You yeah, know, that's right. that's probably why. And then those bombs, what we got, it was a mistake. We got one from the American uh, allies when it was Dresden on the target, and so. Oh, they so, thought they were bombing Dresden. Yeah, and they there was it a Prague. mistake in navigation well, or they something. Guidebook. So, uh, well, <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jana Harovska and Katerina Svobodova, two guides who live and work in Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic. And Jana, when we think of Prague, I want to talk about places that people normally don't know about. But first of all, the places that people know about. When you go to Prague and you have one day to see the great sights, very briefly, what are you going to see? Mm-hmm. Well, so I will just give you three words, which is castle, bridge and clock. So these are the three kind of, you know, highlights. But uh, I would maybe suggest going there either very early in the morning or then later in the day because Prague became very, very popular over the last, you know, well, yeah. decades, I would it, say. You can almost not walk down the bridge. It's so full of yes, tourists. Yes, that's right. But yeah. you've got the, the Moldova River. Yes. And yes. that's the great river. And the, the city of Prague is like 50-50. It seems like straddling the river. On the top of the hill on one side is, in by some measures, the biggest castle in Europe. That's right. With a yeah. wonderful cathedral, great palaces to see, and you've, you've got to see that. Yes. And then what is it called, the Royal Walk or the Royal Way? Well, the Royal Way or Royal Route, which used to be the Coronation Route, actually, mm-hmm. which is practically the route that goes along the major sites. So yeah. if you really want to have an easy walk, so then you can follow it. Actually, there are maps that kind of show, you know, where that route uh, is going on. It, of course, crosses the Charles Bridge and it ends up in the St. Vitus Cathedral, which was used for the royal coronation. So that's why... And the St. Vitus Cathedral, is it's got to be the pointiest church in Europe. It's got all these wonderful pointy, narrow spires overlooking the main square. And then on the city hall, you have this medieval clock that everybody wants to see. Yes, that's right. And you mentioned the Charles Bridge. If there's one most beautiful bridge in Europe... I would vote for the Charles Bridge. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes. Okay, so that's, yeah. the, that's the basic yes, stuff to see. that's the basic stuff. And uh, the Art Nouveau dimension of the city, yeah. um, Muka. Yes, uh, yes. Now, uh, Katerina, you, you bring people through Prague, and everybody wants to see Muka, and everybody wants yep. to see the castle, and everyone wants to see the clock. You must think in your heart, oh, but you should see this. It's not so famous, but this is more hmm. honest, the people or the culture of Prague. What would you recommend for special things that are different than the normal tourist things? I would say that um, to visit Vyšehrad, you know, that's the second castle complex we have there, but because it's an uh, important site for us also, because we have the National Cemetery there, so we can talk a lot about culture, about people who who are buried there, and so also it offers beautiful views of the city, of the river, of the Prague Castle complex on the other side. It's much greener, it's less crowded, it's very local too, that people go there just 
for nice walks, you know, or the little kids play there in the in the playgrounds. So I, I often take people there, and they're very happy. So the tourists line up, and they literally line up to see the castle. It's hard to get in. Yes, it takes a days. long time, to, and you're just shuffling through with all the tourists, and it's great. You need to do it. But on, on the other side of the river, Vishahrad, V-Y-S-E-H-R-A-D, something like that. Yes, that's mm-hmm. And uh, that's it's got another castle, but most importantly, local people, families, greenery, nice views of the river, and the memorials and the National cemetery, cemetery. The, 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 mm-hmm. the heroes of the Czech Republic. So that would be an important thing. Uh, anything else, Jana? Or well, I have to say I really like the uh, you know neighborhoods, which I would call like the outer city center, uh, which actually are the neighborhoods that were mainly built in the 19th century, so beyond the city walls that came down at that time. And uh, so we have got, for instance, an area which is called Vinohrady, which means ah. the vineyards, because okay. there used to be vineyards originally. And it's a very fancy neighborhood with many, uh, you know, really nice cafes and restaurants. So this is a district that changed a lot over the last, again, couple of years. So this is an area where, where I would take the people to show them also that there is not that, you know, touristy Prague only, but also areas which are still fancy, but where regular people live. Where, the real, where you feel yeah. the, the, the pulse yeah. of the city. Katarina, I think that it's fun to think about unique Czech life habits. Every culture has quirky things. You know, the, the British sip their tea uh-huh. and the, the Spanish <laughs> love their guitars. Yeah. What would you say about the people of Czech? If we wanted to make a generalization, what are some fun things that you do when you're with your family that might be uh, kind of celebrating who you are as Czech people? I would say that uh, at least what we started when I was little, and I think it goes in many Czech families, it is to pick mushrooms, the wild grown ones. Ah. Usually I got the question like, but you're still alive because we really know what to pick. And that's amazing. We are taught by our grandfathers. Usually, I don't know, we are like two, three years old. They take us there. They show us what is what. Then you can, of course, get an atlas and you can just <laughs> compare and so. But we don't have loads of events that people would get poisoned. So there must be something. So you go out and get mushrooms. Nobody dies. And no. Does anybody get high? Are they hallucinogenic? Well, of course, it does happen here that and happens. there. But, <laughs> <laughs> but normally true. you just have some nice uh, mushrooms yeah. as a family And excursion. it's a great then for our cuisine. You know, you can do loads of meals with it. So then it's like we sometimes call it like this is the Czech national sport. Of course, we do real sports. Picking mushrooms. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's another example of something uniquely Czech, Katka? Well, then I would say that maybe the beer, you know, culture very much. We like it oh, yeah. uh, a lot. And uh, maybe we are not that well known, but but we are pretty good at that. Now, even according to some statistics, the biggest beer drinkers per capita. So perhaps the Czech people drink the most beer per capita. And it would not surprise me because the <laughs> beer is so good and it hits the table like a glass of water in the United States. It's almost assumed mm-hmm. you're going to have right, a beer. That's right. You don't. Yeah, you don't need to even order another one. When your glass it's almost empty, all of a sudden there is another one. So how do you stop <laughs> the beer from coming? You just simply <laughs> you just show them after, or they maybe see. <laughs> they, they see that's enough. What's a beer hall called in Prague? Is it a, just a tap? We, uh, we uh, well, I like to go to small, uh, even microbreweries these yeah. days because it's something new. But otherwise, of course, we have some where they've been brewing beers even since 1400. Oh, it's so historic. And you step into his, these bar, these yeah. taverns, and it, it's more characteristic even than uh, some you might find in Germany. It's a very intimate way to connect with the culture and convivial. You meet people. And you enjoy some great food also, so it's a cheap place to go, and it's easy to make friends. This Mm -hmm. is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Czech Republic, specifically the capital city of Prague. We're joined by two Czech guides who both live and work in Prague, Jana Horowska and Katarina Svobodova. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sarah's on the line from Ferndale in Michigan. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. 
Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for our guides? I do. Um, I'm going to be traveling to Prague with a friend of mine. We're both single in our early 40s, and we are looking for some maybe out-of-the-way places to go to meet people and just kind of enjoy the Czech culture. I mean, we do plan on going to many of the tourist spots, but we also kind of want to get that authentic uh, Czech experience at, at our age. <laughs> so out of the way, meet the people, get away from the tourists, a couple of women in their 40s traveling. What, what, yeah. would, what would you guys recommend? So I think that you do not necessarily have to stay in Prague. It, of course, depends how many days you will have all together because I would say that for really like exploring of Prague, you would need at least two days. Three would be even better. But you can definitely make a trip to a not very remote neighborhood where there might be an interesting castle or a little medieval town uh, or something. And it's all very easily manageable because the public transportation system is just, you know, functioning and you don't need to be afraid. And usually people communicate in English. So Would it be safe really. in, a, in a neighborhood, just a typical neighborhood for two mm. um, single women? To yeah, that's what I was just going to say when they ask about that. Well, it's our age. This is quite amazing how... I I never thought of that after some time when I started to travel around the world, mm-hmm. that we are actually that lucky that we live in such a safe city and, and the whole country too, that we don't have to be worried as women. I like to go to like jazz bars or, or so to go in the middle of the night back home. I don't need to worry about that. It's a big city. When I'm working in Prague, I, I walk home in the dark at 12 o'clock. I never, it's never even a thought, am I safe? Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful city. You're very blessed that way in Prague and Czech Republic. There you go, Sarah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very you. much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Prague with Jana and Katerina. You know, I'm very curious about the challenges today. Democracies all over the world are experiencing division and fear and rise of um, autocracy and uh, fear of immigrants. And just over the border from you in Hungary is a very extreme example. Uh, what is your view of Hungary, and do you see anything like this happening in the Czech Republic, Katerina? Well, I would say that that not yet. It is not that extreme as I feel it in Hungary when I go there. So when you see Hungary from Czech Republic, just very briefly, what do you see happening in Hungary? Cutting the human rights very much. So the prime minister is really getting over and basically taking the power from from the media and so on and so on. And how is he doing that? How is he able to get the people to support him derailing democracy. Well, it was also that they changed the the electoral system there. So then all of a sudden he was reelected just because they somehow changed the proportion, you know, of the regions and so on. And a similar dynamic is going on in Poland. So you must look around and feel like, uh, what's going to happen in the Czech Republic? Jana, what do you see? Is, is there any feeling of division and fear and people uh, compromising their freedoms in order to be safe from uh, immigrants or refugees or, you know, this kind of fear that autocrats will use? Well, I would say that our country is as much split as yours, to be Mm -hmm. honest, really. And uh, we actually only some, well, less than 10 years ago introduced the direct vote of the president. You must look at the news. You can see the news in in Britain, in Poland, in Turkey, in Hungary, in the United States. And you must wonder which way is the tide going, up or down. And it's worrying, you know, and I just don't understand that people, you know, have forgotten already, you know, what was going on under communism. Because just 30 years ago, you won your freedom. Exactly, exactly. We're getting insider tips for enjoying the charm of Prague right now on Travel with Rick Steves with locally-based tour guides Katerina Svobodova and Jana Horovska. 
Kotka offers a variety of themed tours of Prague at pragwalker.com. By the way, our conversation was recorded just before the pandemic and its lockdowns had disrupted international travel. One thing I love about the Czech Republic is the sense of humor. You guys have the most quirky, fascinating sense of humor. Let's just close with uh, just what is unique about the Czech sense of humor, Katarina? A couple of years ago, it was pretty amazing. We had that contest about the greatest Czech and uh, a person who never existed, who was created by uh, two uh, uh, actors and uh, playwrights. Uh, they just created uh, his uh, then his image, so never really a real person, but he almost made it to be the biggest Czech, so they had to cross him off those. <laughs> <laughs> he was competing against the greatest Czechs yes, in history. Like the, yeah, the, the presidents, and then, you know... It's, it's almost absurd. In fact, uh, Jana, Franz Kafka is a famous Czech yes. um, humorist or philosopher, or well, what would you call him, and what is his thinking? Well, I think that uh, he was a man that cannot be really put into any category. He was really yeah. unique. I would maybe compare him a little bit to George Orwell because I think that he was describing things that were about to come, yeah? Because in some of his books, you can kind of read things that could be very easily applied to, for example, the communist rule that we experience in reality, yeah? So he lived in the, or he was born in Prague in the late uh, 1800s, and for his time, he was a very liberal, you know, uh, man, so he had a bit of a problem with the, you know, environment. So you could could speak out against an authoritarian regime without going to prison if you were absurd and just sort of cloaked in in, in commentary, but it was sort of in another world. And I think the Czechs are really good at traveling without being able to travel. (laughs) During the time yeah. that you could not travel, yeah, 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 yeah because yeah. you could you could fantasize <laughs> and and you could go into a, a tea house and be in China. I mean, Prague. There's some beautiful tea houses. Oh yeah, for oh, people yeah. that couldn't travel. And yeah. then of course you've got the all the absurdist art and the black. What is it, the black light? Black light. Black light theater. Yes, that's that's another thing what uh, we like a lot. And of course, it's not always easy to describe it. I would rather just say go and see go it. because... Uh, because it's absurdity it's... With, uh, in, in a theater. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring the Czech Republic and its capital city of Prague with our two guides, Jana Horovska and Katerina Svobodova. How do we say thank you very much in Czech? Děkuji moc. Děkuji moc. And how do we say happy travels in Czech? Well, we say šťastnou the, yes, cestu. Šťastnou cestu. That would be maybe the best. What is that again? Šťastnou cestu. It's boy, like oh bon boy. voyage. Yeah. Bon voyage. Yeah, bon voyage. It's <laughs> okay. like just no test. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And uh, <laughs> we really appreciate you being here. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, děkujeme. <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kazmara Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio support this week. Find out when other radio stations air travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.